To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Should we use secondary sources for Bible study? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. My approach to understanding the Bible is simple. Whenever there's something in the scriptures we don't fully understand or something we just want to learn more about, the very first place we need to go, and often the only place if we do it right, is scripture itself. As I taught in previous episodes, while there are certain Bible tools like concordances and lexicons and digital versions of those that can help us locate the information that we're looking for, our primary source for all scriptural truth is the Bible alone. Nothing and no one else share that authority. So if you really want to know what the scriptures actually say, the only 100% biblically correct answer can only be found in the Bible. But aside from Bible tools that make the original biblical languages more accessible to us or help us to navigate the Bible, many of us also rely on secondary sources for study, knowledge, and understanding. And for good reason. There's a huge body of Bible-related knowledge that none of us can easily possess on our own. So when teachers and scholars and experts are able to document their knowledge and transmit it to us, we gain access to information we otherwise wouldn't have or wouldn't be able to come by easily on our own. And this is where things start getting a little fuzzy. No doubt there's a huge amount of Bible-related information that is simply not contained or sufficiently developed in the Bible. For example, if we needed help defending creation over evolution, we might get information from a dedicated creation science ministry like Answers in Genesis or Creation Ministries International. Or if we needed help refuting the idea that it's not okay for Jews to believe in Yeshua, we might look for answers in Dr. Michael Brown's books on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Or if we wanted an historical explanation of the different Jewish sects of the first century, or the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, or to figure out the size of a cubit so that we could, I don't know, build a life-size replica of Noah's Ark, There are good, legitimate secondary sources that explain all these things and more. But the problem is that there's also an immense amount of material that is contained in the Bible, but because many secondary sources make it easier to answer our Bible questions without reading the Bible for ourselves, we turn to secondary sources first. And this is the issue I take with using these kind of resources for Bible study and why I strongly advocate for their limited use, if at all. As I've said before, according to Ephesians 4.11, God has certainly given teachers to the body of Messiah as a gift to help believers grasp and apply the truth of the word. But when we over-rely on the teachings and knowledge of others, regularly using secondary sources in our Bible study— we will unavoidably adopt the points of view of those teachers, scholars, and experts, and then filter what the Word actually says through those secondary sources. Whether that teaching comes from the pulpit, a book, a video, or what have you, when we aren't getting our biblical understanding primarily from reading the Word for ourselves, those secondary voices 
become God's word to us. Often without realizing it, we're letting others tell us what the Bible says and assume its authority. And the problem with that is that human beings can be, and far too often are, wrong. So when Bible study resources start getting into theological teaching, to me, that instantly becomes a concern. We need to be able to differentiate between resources that help us read the Bible for ourselves and resources that tell us what they think the Bible says. But my objection to the habitual use of secondary sources goes even beyond that. There is a ton of extra-biblical knowledge and information that is truthful and accurate and can be good to know, but doesn't have a lot of practical, everyday value. Can it be helpful to a certain extent to know the political and religious differences between a Pharisee and a Sadducee, or which King Herod tried to kill the infant Yeshua, and which one had John the Baptist killed? Sure. But how does that information practically help you to resist temptation, or persevere through difficult circumstances, or live a holy and godly life, or to share the Messiah with your family, friends, and neighbors? These aren't things that should become so commonplace to us and matter of fact that instead of continually revisiting them, we gorge ourselves on relatively insignificant Bible-related facts. Too much non-essential information can distract us from what's truly important and give us the impression that we're getting closer to God and learning more about the Bible when in fact we're neglecting the book, bearing it like the kings of Judah under a temple in disrepair. So there are absolutely extremely helpful secondary sources that can assist us in our understanding and enactment of the faith. But in your study of the Bible, in your finding out for yourself what the scriptures say, I believe they should be used sparingly, if at all. And to show you why this is my position, let's spend some time looking at examples from secondary sources so that I can demonstrate to you why I advocate for their infrequent use. All right, here we go. Now, if you watched episode 15 on Bible study tools, toward the end of the episode, I mentioned several resources that can cross the line between tool and teaching. So let's start with those. The first one I mentioned was Bible dictionaries. These are also sometimes called Bible encyclopedias, as they tend to not really resemble normal dictionaries where you have a word followed by a definition. Bible dictionary and encyclopedia entries are often short articles. This is where you might go to learn about the first century Jewish sects, or the length of a cubit. So, for example, one sentence near the beginning of the 900-word entry for Tabernacle in Easton's Bible dictionary says, The sacred tent... Hebrew, Mishkan, the dwelling place, the movable tent temple which Moses erected for the service of God, according to the pattern which God himself showed to him on the mount. So that's going to be a pretty typical entry. Testable biblical facts, figures, places, and character profiles, or stuff uncovered by archaeology and historical records, things like that. But when the entry is of a more theological nature, that's when the facts can start to give way to the author's creativity. So again, in Easton's Bible Dictionary, the more than 500-word entry for atonement includes this representative sentence. The meaning of the word atonement is simply at-one-ment, i.e., the state of being at-one or being reconciled so that atonement 
is reconciliation with God. So this part of the dictionary's definition of atonement is clever, but from my perspective, ridiculous, because you can't define a Hebrew concept by dismantling an English word based on its archaic definition and Latin origin. It also ignores the actual Hebrew definition of atonement, which means to appease or pacify God by the covering over of our sin. That is, covering it with innocent blood. That's both the lexical definition as well as how the scriptures themselves define it, as in Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood which makes atonement for the soul. And also Deuteronomy 21.8, accept atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Adonai. So while we can reason that reconciliation with God results from our atonement, that's not what atonement biblically means. So regarding Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias then, you need to remember that just because it's called a dictionary or encyclopedia, that doesn't assign it any unusual authority to teach us or to tell us what the scriptures say. When dealing with factual subjects, they'll likely be accurate and educational. But you need to be careful not to get bogged down with all the extraneous background information. And for theological subjects, you need to remember that the author will be able to take much more liberty with the topic and be able to interject his own subjective theological ideas. So you need to be on guard not to allow Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias to unduly color your understanding of the scriptures. Next up are commentaries, which are Bible resources that contain many articles corresponding to specific Bible verses or passages. So while commentaries can be searched topically, generally their intended use is for when you want to know a commentator's take on a particular portion of Scripture. And here is where you again need to be extra careful. Because commentaries are exactly that, a collection of comments written by human beings. The fact that a person or persons set out to comment on the entire Bible while impressive, again, doesn't assign it any unusual authority or automatic level of biblical correctness. Commentaries, unlike dictionaries or encyclopedias, are primarily theological in nature, which means that the correctness of the commentary will depend on the theology of the commentator. So, for example, if you're looking for commentary that comes from a Messianic Jewish perspective, there's Dr. David Stern's Jewish New Testament commentary, which covers his own translation of the New Testament. When used alongside his translation, it re-explains and reframes a lot of anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic perspectives on the Bible as historically taught and held by Christian theologians. That can be really helpful. One of the classic Christian commentaries, on the other hand, was written in the early 18th century by English minister and author Matthew Henry. It's a six-volume, exhaustive commentary on every verse in the Bible. There's also a single-volume, abridged version of that work. But despite its wide use and influence, it's still just human commentary, and should be regarded as such, with no more or less respect than it deserves. And again, just to show you why I'm cautious of commentaries as well, let's take a look to see what Matthew Henry has to say about Romans 2.28 and 29. Let's start with those verses as rendered by the ESV, which says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So Paul here is talking about one who is a Jew outwardly or inwardly. There's no dispute that Paul is saying the word Jew. And it also speaks of circumcision. Again, indisputable. Now let's look at Matthew Henry's commentary on these verses. He says, He is not a Christian that is one outwardly, nor is that baptism which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Christian that is one inwardly, and baptism is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter. So Henry here is swapping out the term Jew for Christian and circumcision for baptism with nothing from Paul to justify such an explanation. Now, one could argue that he's making a spiritual application from what Paul is saying about Jews and applying it to Christians. But I don't think so, because this is what he says in the concise version about the same passage. For he is no more a Christian now than he was really a Jew of old, who is only one outwardly, but he is the real Christian who is inwardly a true believer. What he's saying is that Christians who are Christians inwardly are the true and real believers, while at the same time saying that people of physical Jewish descent are not really Jews, implying that true and real Christians are now the true and real Jews. Now, to the Christian ear, that might not sound like anti-Jewish replacement theology at all. And we can have that conversation. But the point is, that his commentary takes these verses completely out of context and simply imposes unsupported ideas on the text. The obviousness that Paul isn't speaking about believers in general, but specifically about Jewish people and Jewish believers, is made plain in the very next verses in Romans 3, 1, and 2, which says in the ESV, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And there's plenty more that Paul teaches elsewhere about this. So as with any person's teachings, even a 300-year-old well-regarded commentary can contain incorrect Bible interpretation. What concerns me, however, about the overuse of commentaries as compared to other teaching formats in general is that the breadth of the work can give the impression that the commentator possesses an uncommon amount of biblical knowledge, and therefore his work should carry greater weight. You just need to remember that if you pick up a commentary, any commentary, use it sparingly, and don't simply accept or be easily influenced by whatever it says. Moving on now, let's talk about study Bibles, which, as I've said before, I'm really not a fan of. But I understand the appeal, I really do. Again, study Bibles embed a ton of extra information from commentaries to charts to maps directly next to, above, and below the text of Scripture that the additional information pertains to. It's extremely convenient and is designed to provide the reader with relevant supplementary material to inform and enhance the Bible reading experience. But while I'm certainly concerned about the content of any secondary sources, with study Bibles, my greater concern is is the lack of barrier between the additional material and God's Word. Putting the words of men directly on the same page as the Word of God unavoidably 
gives that material an incredible amount of influence, if not authority, over the reader's understanding of the text. The reader doesn't have to put in any amount of effort to obtain the additional material, and therefore ingests it along with the scriptures all at the same time. Personally, I even take issue with Bibles that embed section headings within the biblical text. As I've said previously, the extent of which I personally feel is appropriate for a page in the sacred scriptures is chapter and verse, cross-references, and very brief footnotes. In the MJLT, we also have reference headings at the top of the pages outside the body of the text, and a few special notations within the book of Acts. That's it. No ongoing commentary or other supplementary material. We already have a barrier between us and God's perfect word simply because we're reading a translation and not the original. We only compound the problem then when we surround and infiltrate the scriptures with man's thoughts and ideas. Case in point, perhaps the most influential source to undermine the biblical creation account can be found in the 20th century Schofield Reference Bible, which was one of the first study Bibles. The opening page of Schofield is actually quite a sight to behold, because literally nothing on the page is scripture except for two small boxes containing Genesis 1-1 through the first phrase of verse 4. So under the chapter heading, Schofield writes the first section heading of his study Bible, which reads, The Original Creation. Okay, that's interesting. Then we come to the King James text of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Then immediately following verse 1, Schofield inserts another section heading. This one says, Earth made waste and empty by judgment. Jeremiah 4, 23-26. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Well, lucky for us, he explains it in footnotes 2 and 3, just inches away down the page from verse 1. In footnote 2, he says, Three creative acts of God are recorded in this chapter. One, the heavens and the earth. Two, animal life. And three, human life. The first creative act refers to the dateless past and gives scope for all the geologic ages. Wow. So God's act of creating the heavens and the earth refers to a dateless past that explains the geologic ages, like Jurassic and Cretaceous. Well, that's just amazing. I didn't know all that was in verse 1. How did Schofield know that? Well, he tells us in the next footnote, Jeremiah 4, Isaiah 24, and 45 clearly indicate that the earth had undergone a cataclysmic change as the result of divine judgment. And then immediately after verse 2, he adds the note, the new beginning. So the notes and commentary of Schofield's study Bible basically launched what came to be known as the gap theory, which was invented to explain the fossil record and what appears to many to be an earth that's millions of years old. Basically, Schofield believed that Jeremiah and Isaiah could fill in the alleged gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 that the physical sciences obviously indicate must be there. That before the creation that we know today, 
which was rebooted 6,000 years ago, the world was previously populated by animals and people that God wiped out because the people were evil. That's what Schofield's saying. So I had to get my creation science expert son, Isaac, to explain all this to me. And according to gap theory, as indicated here by Schofield, this is essentially how one should understand Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, millions of years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was inhabited and even experienced evolution. People lived on the earth and Lucifer was an angel. The earth became evil and Lucifer rebelled against God. God judged the earth and wiped it out in a pre-Diluvian flood, leaving no survivors. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. So that's the bottom line of the entire first page of Schofield's study Bible. Now, again, my point here isn't to debunk gap theory, long earth ages, or evolution, but simply to point out how study Bibles can be a gargantuan influence on the reader. With copious footnotes and subheadings and inline notations, the reader is bombarded with information that he might never even dream of were it not for the intrusion of man's easily accessible ideas imposing themselves on the precious words of Scripture. While not every heading and commentary of a study Bible is going to have as disastrous effects as Schofield's, you're just opening yourself up to untold amounts of undue influence, extra-biblical thoughts, and possibly even anti-biblical ideas right there on the pages of Scripture. And that's why I highly recommend against using study Bibles. You can get plenty of additional Bible information elsewhere, and when you have to work for it a little bit, you're going to be much more discriminating about what you internalize. So Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, commentaries, and study Bibles are secondary sources that are often used as Bible study tools, and some of them generally contain some good, legitimate material. But by their very nature, despite their intended design, these kinds of secondary sources also have the potential to introduce unbiblical ideas and be a hindrance to understanding what the scriptures actually say. Other secondary sources that some use for understanding the Bible include historical works such as Josephus, who was a Jewish historian born shortly after the time Yeshua was here on earth. Josephus is a reliable eyewitness to some of the events of first century Israel, including the destruction of the temple, and his writings provide extra-biblical insights about first century Jewish religion and politics, as well as other historical information not found in any other records of the time. While historical understanding can certainly provide helpful background information to what we read about in the Bible, my primary concern is when it moves to the foreground, causing us to reinterpret the word in a way that contradicts the plain sense of the text. The words of Scripture itself need to come first. And finally, there are the secondary religious writings of various faith traditions, into which many adherents are systematically indoctrinated, making such writings the de facto lens through which to view and consider the scriptures. So let's wrap up with a quick look at just two examples of this, starting with the Talmud. Now, ordinarily, Christians wouldn't consider the Talmud as a secondary source for Bible study. And frankly, neither do I. 
But in Messianic Judaism and Jewish root circles, the teachings and traditions of Rabbinic Judaism, which all stem from the Talmud, are often part and parcel of Messianic theology and practice. So it's worth taking a peek at the source material. So take, for example, the Talmud's attitude toward Torah study, which many believers over the last couple of decades especially have started to prioritize over the rest of the Bible. Now, you know I love the scriptures, and that obviously includes the Torah. But this is what the Babylonian Talmud says according to the tractate Megillah 16b, 18-20 through 20, in the William Davidson Talmud. Rav Yosef said, Studying Torah is greater than saving lives. Rav Shmuel Bar Marta said, Studying Torah is greater and more important than building the temple. Rav Yitzchak Bar Shmuel Bar Marta said, Studying Torah is greater and more important than honoring one's father and mother. So the doctrine of Torah study in Judaism says that Torah study is the greatest thing you can do, greater than saving lives, greater than building the temple, and even greater than keeping the commands of the very Torah that you're supposed to be studying, namely the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, Exodus 20.12 and Deuteronomy 5.16. And this, of course, flies in the face of scriptures such as Yaakov 1.23-24. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, this one has been likened to a man viewing his natural face in a mirror, for he viewed himself and went away and immediately forgot what kind of man he was. And also the word of the Master Yeshua in Matadyahu, Matthew chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. For God said, honor your father and mother. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, an offering is being made to God with whatever good thing you would have otherwise benefited from me, he will not need to honor his father. And in so teaching, you set aside the word of God because of your tradition. So clearly, this Talmudic doctrine concerning Torah study is flat out wrong. In no way does the Talmud here legitimately inform our attitude and practice toward the Torah, nor does it help us to better understand the scriptures. And finally, let's look at the Westminster Catechism, which has been around since the mid-1600s and has had widespread influence across Protestant Christian denominations, whether you realize it or not. We just looked at Judaism's view of the fifth commandment. Well, this is what the Westminster Catechism says about the fourth. Question 116 of the Catechism asks, What is required in the fourth commandment? And it answers, The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word, expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, and the first day of the week ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. And in the New Testament, called the Lord's Day. And of course, all the proof texting in the world can't demonstrate that from the moment Yeshua was resurrected, or at any other time, that the Sabbath, the Shabbat, was ever moved from Saturday to Sunday. Obviously, I'll be doing a teaching on this at some point, but the entire idea is made up out of whole cloth. It started with the Catholic Church, 
was overtly perpetuated among Protestants and still holds to this day. There's not a shred of scriptural evidence that supports Christianity's doctrine of the first day Christian Sabbath. But again, my point here isn't to refute that belief, but only to demonstrate that even long-held Christian doctrine can be a faulty secondary source for understanding the Bible. Now, I realize that I largely focused on the negative aspects of secondary sources and purposely chose examples that would support my assertions. But don't take that to mean that you should never, ever use them. I have some of these things on my own shelf, and I do use them from time to time. But your Bible study, whether alone or in a group, should be aimed at your being built up by the nourishment or sharing of the pure Word of God, not the intellectual exercise of squeezing all the minutiae out of Bible-related non-essentials that you possibly can. As I said from the outset, I'm simply encouraging you to use secondary sources rarely and not default or defer to them or focus on them whenever you're studying the scriptures. Even though I've shown you how these resources can easily lead you astray, and believe me, there's a lot more where that came from, my goal wasn't to disparage any particular extra-biblical source, but to elevate the scriptures. I want you reading the scriptures for yourself and listening to God's voice over all others. My goal wasn't to attempt to convince you not to use outside sources based on a mere handful of examples, but to at least make you more cautious, if not curb any overuse, especially at the expense of reading the scriptures as your primary and often only source for all biblical answers. If you truly want to know what the Bible says, then you need to not take the easy path and rely on secondary sources that present other people's beliefs and points of view about Scripture or overload you with non-essential Bible-related facts. And when you do use some of those resources, a healthy dose of skepticism can keep you from opening yourself up to extra-biblical and even anti-biblical ideas. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, the best Bible resource you can ever have is simply familiarity with the Bible itself. So, is it okay to use secondary sources for Bible study? Well, yes and no, but never only, and certainly not often. So use secondary sources sparingly, if at all. Remember that God's Word is the one word that should carry the most weight, and to limit all other voices so that the Scriptures can clearly speak for themselves. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's Kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.